Our scripture tonight will be from the book of Matthew. So I'll give you a moment to get your Bibles open to Matthew and your tablets set up. We'll be reading Matthew 27, verse 33 through 50. Matthew 27, verse 33 through 50. I'll give you another moment. Here we go, verse 33. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of skull, they gave him vinegar to drink, mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there. And set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and built it on three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priest mocking him with the scribes and the elders said, He saved others, himself cannot save. He be the king of Israel, let him now come down off from the cross, and we will then believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness all over the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there, when they heard that, said, This man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave to him to drink. The rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as our world continues to grow in turmoil, we also must grow in strength and the return to your gospel. Continue to give us the strength and the wisdom, Lord, to bear what is upon us. We need your advice, your calm. We need our doctors and our responders and our scientists to continue to grow to combat this virus. You are an almighty Lord, one with no boundaries, limitless powers. Cast those powers upon us, along with your mercy and your forgiveness, your wisdom and your grace. We ask this in your name, amen. And now Pastor Clark. Thank you, Mark. Good evening, church. What an awesome time this is for us to come together in this manner and to enter into the gospel and rejoice in it. I know that um, the news this week and probably into next week, if you watch the news, isn't going to be good. Uh, this epidemic is to peak in 
Oakland County and Macomb County um, within the next uh, 10 days. And literally hundreds of people um, are going to die, according to the news folks. As you watch that, there'll probably be a tendency toward fear and panic. I want to call to your attention that this is Easter week for the most of us, and we're rejoicing in the fact that on the third day he got up out of the grave. And we have a living Savior. And I hope you'll be comforted by that. Always when I think of Good Friday, I often say this to folks I'm talking with, today's Friday, but remember Sunday's coming, Resurrection Day, uh, new life. I want you to know that God has blessed this place. I want you to think about this, that God so far has put a real shield of protection around you, our residents and the membership of this congregation. Not one of our members here at Grace Gospel Fellowship that I know of uh, has the virus. Not one of our program people has the virus so far. And uh, so we can say, and at least I say, what a wonder that is. I feel like we're under the direct protection of, of our God. And uh, even if one of us got it, we know who the great physician is. And so I hope that you'll stay strong and be encouraged in knowing him. Also, I want to encourage you to do the things that we are asked to do, to wash your hands, to stay away from those that are sick, uh, to stay in place and uh, not be a part of spreading this epidemic. And I want to commend you. Uh, it's just been absolutely wonderful the way this church has behaved itself and uh, what is happening here. All right, this is Wednesday evening, and of course, Good Friday's coming, and then uh, Easter Sunday, we will not be meeting here in this building, but you'll be hearing a great message of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ on Sunday, and uh, even with the epidemic raging, we will rejoice in we serve a living Savior, He's in the world today, and we know that he is living whatever men may say. On Wednesday evening, we've been talking about the seven sayings from the cross of Christ. We have gone to Calvary. I was thinking this morning, coming over to this building, what an awful place Calvary was. Golgotha, it is called, or the place of the skull, a dark, uh, dreary, forbidding place. Not a pleasant place uh, to visit. It was there on that mount that the Romans uh, crucified uh, the criminals of that day. It's the place of death. And uh, we have already heard several sayings from the cross of the Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Woman, behold thy son, and son, behold thy mother. 
My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it is finished. I want to mention three things tonight to you. And I trust that you'll be able to enter in and rejoice in this so great salvation. First of all, I thirst. This was the fifth saying from the cross. What caused Christ to cry from the cross, I thirst? Well, probably many of you have never really thought about that particularly. But let me give you a little insight. What was taking place at this time when Christ cried, I thirst, was monumentous. It was a, an awesome time. It was Christ in battle, God in human flesh. You see, Jesus went to the cross to save his people from their sins. And in order to do that, he had to do battle with hell, with the demons, with the devil himself who was there at Calvary. Do you know that the greatest battle that has ever been fought was fought at Calvary 2,000 years ago, Christ on the cross? Do you understand that the devil there at Calvary did his very best to kill Jesus, to take his life uh, from him, to stop the crucifixion from being a successful redemption? And if Christ had have died in that battle, certainly we would not have been enjoying the victory that we're enjoying today. Think about this. Hell emptied itself that day on Golgotha. Every demon in hell attacked Jesus Christ, Satan himself, leading the way to take his life from him. And so when we hear the cry, I thirst, it's a cry in the middle of this battle, in the heat of the battle. Someone has said there is no thirst like the thirst when one is dying or very, very sick. Christ was experiencing tremendous pain in body and soul and spirit uh, during this time. And he cried, I thirst. What an amazing thing it is. They went and got vinegar and touched his lips. There is another cry from the cross. Jesus is about to expire. And he says this with a loud voice. I love the way uh, the King James Version says this. With a loud voice, he cried. In other words, in mighty power. As you read the story of the crucifixion, you watch as if Christ is getting weaker and weaker. And you're kind of wondering. Everybody deserted him. No one's there, seemingly, for him. And you wonder, will this battle be won? Will redemption be bought and paid for? Will he be victorious? The truth is, at the end of the crucifixion, he looked up into heaven and he cried with a loud, strong voice, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. In other words, his life was not taken from him. Satan was not successful in killing him. We've heard uh, previous to this 
the cry of it is finished, it is accomplished. So Christ on the cross knew that he had bought and paid for his people's sins, that he was victorious. I have often said over these 55 years of preaching the gospel that I don't like to go to Calvary. It's a, it's a dark place. It's a dreary place. It's a place of death. It's a place of agony. It's a place where a soul is dying. It's a place where God in human flesh is taking my sins upon his own body on the tree. It's a place where God is imputing my transgressions to his only son and tremendous suffering going on. Actually, Jesus suffering my hell, paying my uh, debt. And so uh, often I don't go there. Although in the beginning of my ministry, my very first message, I preached from this text, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. I thirst. Remember, there's a battle going on, a real war. There's never been a battle like this in the history. And there never will be another battle like this where God against demonic forces and human forces was bearing our sins in his own body on the tree. There's something else that happened there. The three hours of darkness. When I was a young man, actually in high school, all through high school, I worked at Van Dyke Clothiers. Some of you probably uh, know about Van Dyke Clothiers. It's not open, I believe, now. But at that time, it was at Nine Mile in Van Dyke. I was attending Lincoln High School. And every Easter, that clothing store, men's clothing store, would close on Good Friday at 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock. I never understood that for many, many years, even working there. I thought it was Good Friday, got off work. That was a great thing. But Mark has read today uh, to you from the scripture where there was a very definite event that took place. Actually, three hours of darkness from uh, 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock. And I remember us closing the store, and it was owned uh, by the Ross family, who were Jewish, but they closed the store. Many stores closed back in 1963 and 1964. I can remember those stores closing. And the reason they closed is because of this three hours of darkness from uh, 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, everything shut down. Well, here in the scriptures, we're told that there was a midnight darkness that came over all of the earth. Think about that. Right in the middle of the crucifixion of Christ, there was a midnight darkness. Let's talk about that for a few moments. From nine till noon, the usual decree of light was present. So there was time enough for our Lord's adversaries to behold and insult his sufferings. There could be no mistake about his being nailed to the cross or his crucifixion, because it all happened in broad daylight. For three long hours, they sat and watched him there. Then came the closing 
of the eye of day at high noon. Think about it. He who walked on water, raised the dead, healed the sick, now comes to his lowest place in life. He is faint. The fever is on him. He's thirsty, but still has power in this weakest time on earth to darken the sun and the moon at noon. What power causes the sun to set at noon? He will surely exercise this power in the salvation of his people. Think about this darkness. The greatest day in history seemed likely to pass by, uh, to pass by unheeded, when suddenly night hastened from his chambers and usurped the day. Business stood still. The plow stopped in mid-furrow. The axe paused, uplifted. Jerusalem was a city by night. Only people were not in their beds. Around the Savior's death, there was an appropriate quiet secured. The cattle herded up as if a storm was coming. In fact, it's recorded in history at this time of Christ's crucifixion, a philosopher said, either the world has come to an end or God has died. He was right on that second message. The songwriter writing at the cross penned these words, well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when God the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin. Now, I would ask this question. Why this darkness? Well, first of all, it was a veil to stop the mocking. If you want to see human depravity, go to Calvary. Christ is hanging on the tree. I see the dreadful cross. I, I see the thieves on either side. I look around and see that motley crew of scribes and religious people, priests and Pharisees and strangers from different countries, and there are Roman soldiers. They turn their eyes on him and gaze with cruel scorn upon the Holy One who is in the center. In truth, it is an awful sight. They all unite to dishonor the meek and lowly one, the Lord Jesus Christ. I cannot read this story of the Master's death knowing the pain of crucifixion without deep anguish in my own soul. The pain involved was immeasurable, but there was more than pain upon Calvary. There was ridicule and contempt. These jests, these mockers, grown adult people sticking out their tongue as Christ hung on the cross. It was too terrible a sight. The pain of the victim was grievous enough, but the abominable wickedness of the mockers to mock him in his death. In the middle of the crime, there came down a darkness which rendered it impossible for them to go further with it. Jesus must die. There must be no alleviation. And from death, there must be for him no deliverance. But the scoffers must be silenced. Their mouths were closed by the dense darkness which shut them in. Why this darkness? 
It was a concealment for the blessed person of our divine Lord. The angels found for him, their king, a thick covering in the which his majesty might be sheltered in its hour of misery. It was too much for the wicked eyes to gaze so rudely on that immaculate person. His enemies stripped him naked and cast lots for his clothes. His manhood must have suitable concealment. It would seem that in infinite tenderness, God wrapped the land in darkness in the hour of his son's supreme shame. Secondly, what does this darkness tell us? It tells us that here are matters too profound for words. Here are things that cannot be fully apprehended by our finite minds. Here is the central mystery of our faith. I try to explain it as substitution. And I'm explicit about Christ dying in our stead, in our room, and in our place. And yet I feel that the idea of substitution doesn't come close to covering the whole matter. No human conception can completely grasp the whole of this dread mystery of Christ dying in the sinner's stead. It was wrought in darkness because the full far-reaching meaning and result cannot be beheld in finite minds. You tell me that the death of the Lord was a grand example of self-sacrifice, and I can see that and much more. You tell me that it was a wondrous obedience to the will of God, and I can see that and much more. You tell me it was bearing the sin of a number that no man can number as the chastisement of our peace for our sins. And I can see that and have found my rest and hope on that truth. But don't tell me that is all that is in the cross. There is much more in the Redeemer's death. God only knows the love of God. Christ only knows what he accomplished when he gave up the ghost. Who knows all that was accomplished in that darkness? This we all know. God was manifest in the flesh. And in that human flesh, he put away sin by his own sacrifice. But without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. To the inner heart of the ministry, of the mystery, exposition cannot penetrate. Thirdly, what does this darkness represent? It represents the night of the Savior's soul. And now I'm way over my head. It is that time in which the brightest star disappears. It is that hour of the king in loneliness, forsaken. Imagine to yourself a man free from sin, holy, of divine nature, who calls the Almighty his light, God's nearness his paradise, and God's love his bliss. Imagine to yourself this one who was the perfection of human nature, this one who carried out to its limits all which God intended in the creation of man. He, the spotless Lamb of God, 
As a boy, he never spoke an impatient or disrespectful word, never manifested an unkind or selfish feeling, never disobeyed, never failed his duty. As a man, his mind was never allured away by folly or impeded by idleness or deranged by passion. The glory of God was seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Behold the man, his back all furled with stripes, the brow pierced with thorns, the parched lips, the bleeding of the nails. See this sinless Savior. Instead of tears and the sweet sympathy of friends, he hears nothing but scoffing of the crowd beneath the cross. Instead of the hands, tender hands to close his dying eyes, there is a spear to pierce his side. But this was all outward. There was an inward suffering which we cannot see. Oh, the grief which we could not see, which could not be seen. Imagine him deprived of all the experiences of the gracious presence which refreshed him. Those communions with his heavenly Father, of whom he explained, Whom have I in heaven but thee? You see, at Calvary there was a soul dying. Who can guess what must be the pains of a soul dying? A soul never died on earth, yet for hell is the place of dying souls. Where they die everlastingly, the second death. Oh, there was within the ribs of Christ's body, hell itself poured out. Death is the entail of sin. Had there been no sin, there would have been no death. Sin separates from God, who is the fount of all life. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 Sin excludes God's presence. Spiritual death is separation of soul and spirit from God. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord? And so you see, I speak not merely tonight of our Lord's mere bodily pain, but his darkness is expressive of the real pressure on the Savior's soul. In those three hours of darkness, he experienced eternally more than the pricking of the crown of thorns or the scourge or the cross. He died a penal death. Now hear this, for this is the heart of the gospel. He died a penal death, not only a physical death. This awful darkness was, this, was the darkness of desertion, shut out from God in his time of sorrow. There was no help, no comfort, no hope, no peace. All comfort was withdrawn. All that could distress him was upon him and filled him. The Savior's spirit was wounded. His distress was utter and entire, banished to dreadful and horrifying visions of hell, surrounded by nothing but images of sin and death. It was all about him, around him, above him, within him. He experienced an overwhelming horror of sin, an unknown sense of wrath crept over him like midnight gloom. Here is Christ, three darkened hours, 
He's in the most holy place. He stands at the altar of God Almighty. He performs his sacrificial functions. He is both the priest and the lamb. Behind this veil of darkness, he was engaged in the conflict of the ages. He was made sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He was bearing our sins, 1 Peter 2.24. He was dying the just for the unjust, 1 Peter 3.18. He was bearing the chastisement of our peace, Isaiah 53. He was receiving the wages of my sin. This is the heart of it, the center of it, the soul of it, the marvel of it, and the mystery of it. He was arraigned in spirit before the bar of God under the imputation of human guilt. The high court of heaven descended, as it were, to Mount Calvary, and the sentence was pronounced. Let the law take its course, and the eternal judge of the ages turns his back as if to leave the throne of justice. Christ then took hold of the most awful wail of agony that ever escaped the human heart. Here was a soul at the utmost of sin, having lost the vision of God. Eli, Eli, lama Sebastiana, which is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It pleased the Father, you see, to bruise him, we're told in Scripture. God hath put him to grief. He hath made his soul a sacrifice for sin. Oh, I know I'm failing to describe it. I can only weep over it and enter into it of how great a Savior he is and what was the cost and price of my redemption. Let his sufferings be an encouragement to you, my sinner friend, to trust him, to believe on him. Here is found no vague evidence that Christ's sufferings on the cross were vicarious. He truly, literally was our substitute. He was made sin for us, a curse for us. Our sin was laid on him. He is clearly seen in the passages that Mark read as our mighty substitute, our representative, our head, our surety, our proxy, the divine friend of sinners who undertook to stand in our stead and by the priceless merit of his own sufferings to purchase our redemption. He was condemned, though innocent, that he might acquit, though guilty. He wore a crown of thorns that we might wear a crown of glory. He was stripped of his raiment that we might be clothed in everlasting righteousness. He was mocked and reviled that we might be honored and blessed. He was reckoned a male factor and numbered among the transgressors that we might be reckoned innocent and justified from all sin. He saved not himself that he might save us. He died that we might live. How this should stir us to hate sin, sin in ourselves, as we see him dying in our stead, room and place. Three hours of darkness. How will we ever grasp it? Throughout eternity, 
when we've been there 10,000 years, he's going to be making known the riches of his grace to us. We will understand to a greater extent as the ages pile themselves one on top of another, the exceeding riches of his grace. To God be the glory, great things he has done. I urge you, my friend, my sinner friend, trust Jesus Christ. Your good works are not going to save you. Turning over a new leaf, starting over this Easter Sunday. No, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. What a glorious God, what a wonderful Savior. God bless.